It's good to be back this week, uh, returning to our series on Revelation. Uh, Dr. Sutton did a great job last week, giving me a, a little week off. Well, not that great. Calm down. He was okay. He was okay for a fill-in, okay? Um, this week in Revelation, uh, you can bring the slides up for me. We're doing week 16 in this, and it's, the title this week is, Why God and How Long? Have you ever been frustrated with God? Why does God allow his children to suffer at the hands of evil in this world? Look, I'm not talking about the type of suffering that you endure because of your own decisions. That's not suffering. That's consequences. There's a big difference. I'm talking about paying an actual price for identifying with Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. Globally, many people, many, especially in America, don't know this because we're kind of isolated from suffering, but there are over 90,000 people a year, Christians, killed because of their faith, mostly in Africa and Asia and in the Middle East. But yet Paul says something strange. He says we should be joyful when we suffer for the sake of Jesus or the gospel, even though we as Americans can't really relate to that. See, this is one of those truths where we suffer for Jesus, it brings joy. This is one of those truths in Scripture where we will all kind of self-righteously nod at with a serious face and say, yes, amen. But we secretly hope we never have to endure it ourselves. Why can't the uh, prosperity gospel be a real thing, you know? Why can't we just expect, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that the blessings will flow? And frankly, what is a proper response for a Christian to persecution? Should we fight back? Should we just smile and remain stoic? Just be strong and brave and take it, act unfazed? And why is this kind of suffering for the sake of the gospel even necessary in God's plan of redemption? Why doesn't Jesus just come back and take care of evil already? What's he waiting for? That's the question asked in today's passage in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. This is the fifth seal, the fifth of seven. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's a short passage we're dealing with this week because there's so much in it. But there's some interesting history in this passage. I want you to see that there are these things called earthly copies. I'm going to read a passage to you from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, there are two altars in the temple. 
talking about the earthly temple. There's this first golden altar where the bowls of incense were burned. If you remember last time I was preaching, we talked about these golden bowls of incense that represent the prayers of the saints, like the evening incense offering that are a pleasing aroma to God. The, the bowls of incense on earth were just a copy, a foreshadow of the real golden altar, the bowls of incense. The heavenly altar that, of prayer that John described. The golden bowls that are the prayers of the saints. Remember that object lesson where I actually burned a, 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 a thing of incense here? Some of you said it smelled terrible. Others said it smelled great. I don't know. I thought it was okay. But you remember that. Well, today we see another altar in heaven that has an earthly replica. The earthly object lesson is this bronze altar. And what is this bronze altar? It is the altar of blood sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The altar in the temple <clears throat> was this bronze altar where the animal sacrifices were performed. This bronze altar, it's interesting because it was immediately visible to anyone who entered into the temple gate. It was right there. You couldn't miss it. And under the altar, there was this trough, and I know it's graphic, but stick with me. There was this trough where the blood of the animal that would sacrifice would run off into a receptacle for that blood, and there it would be burned off. And this bronze altar reminded all who, all who entered how desperately we all need to be made righteous by blood if we are going to dwell with God. It's a reminder someone or something innocent must suffer to make us righteous so that we can have that white robe that we've talked about in the previous passages. This bronze altar with the blood of atonement gathering below in the trough is an unmistakable graphic picture of what? The story of redemption and the blood of Christ and the price redemption actually costs. In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19 to 20, we see this verse. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior, a defender, and a deliverer to them. It's a symbol that reminded Israel, this bronze altar, not just about their own sinfulness, but there was a promised savior, a defender, a deliverer who is at work because of that altar. It also represents, and this is important now, this is the most important thing, it represents evil's future greatest moment of defeat and despair. The moment that the fate of the war between good and evil was decided at the cross when the Lamb of God gave his life. But even with that, God's people still might question him. People asking God, how long? And that question, how long? You know, it's interesting. Revelation isn't the first time it happens. It's actually all throughout Scripture where the faithful express frustration with God's timing. Even those who follow God don't realize, even us, how often we get angry with God, question his plan, his purpose, or his goodness. We question, where is he? What's he doing? What in the world does his timing mean? Sometimes we even take it upon ourselves to remind him that evil needs to be judged. So that's the historical aspect of this passage. 
There's some incredible theology here I want to share with you. I've called it evil's last stand. First of all, I know this may come as a shock to some of you, but evil hates the redeemed. You know, the last time we detailed for you those first four seals, remember the four horsemen? You can go back and listen to it if you need to. Every one of these four horsemen are strong, and the scripture says they are eager to complete their task. They are, in fact, unstoppable forces sent by Jesus when he opened the first four seals of the scroll. They are eager to carry out their part of the plan of redemption, that separation of the wheat from the weeds. And as they have patrolled the earth since Cain and Abel until now, evil has been, get this, powerless to stop those four horsemen. So because of that, evil, which is under attack, only has one possible counterattack against the kingdom of heaven. To attack those of us who have been redeemed. You know, Jesus told, this, told us this would happen. He said, when the kingdom of heaven comes, when that moment, when my church begins, here's what he says in Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The martyrs under that heavenly bronze altar are expressing frustration. God, how long do we have to wait for vengeance upon evil? Do you ever feel that way? Desiring vengeance over evil, wondering why God seems to allow evil to begin with? I want you to see something. I want you to see if you can, when I read this, spot the similarities with the altar and the saints under it and the servants in the story of the wheat and the tares and the master's response. Look at this passage in Matthew 13. Remember what happened here? The master went out and planted wheat. And then it says at night the enemy came and planted weeds. The servants say, Master, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Why are there weeds? Why did you allow this? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants asked, you want us to go gather the weeds? We'll go pull them right now. Let's go. (laughs) He says, no, because if you pull the weeds now, you'll root up the weed as well. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but to gather the wheat into my barn. Do you see the similarities? Those redeemed under the altar who died for the cause are asking, how long, Jesus? How long must we wait for vengeance? How long will you let these weeds that grow among us persecute us, hate us, kill us? Church, this is what the fifth seal is. It's evil's war against the church after the resurrection of Jesus. We are in the fifth seal now. Which brings me to the personal section. This was the sermon preview this week. The less engaged we are in kingdom work, the safer life can be among the weeds. You know, the question why God and how long I think can be asked by three different types of people from three different perspectives. And all of us fall into one of these three, I believe. Some will ask the question because they refuse to believe in a God of suffering. I can't believe in a God that allows this kind of thing to happen. Have you ever heard that? Somebody use that excuse? God is callous. He doesn't care. 
He's not doing his job. You know, they aren't really atheists. They're just mad at God. I mean, when somebody says, how could God allow this? How can they say they're atheists? Really, they're saying, I'm mad at God for allowing things that I don't think should take place. Others, another group of people that might ask how long or why, are people who have the wrong expectations of God. That he's somehow bound to provide for us earthly blessings and prosperity when we have faith and trust in him. This itself is sort of a twisted, selfish individualism that assumes that God is obligated to shower his people with earthly blessings. When they ask the question, why God, it shows confusion due to ignorance regarding the actual plan of redemption as it's revealed in the book of Revelation. And neither one of these groups of people, neither one of these perspectives can really inspire real motivation to making the kingdom of heaven a priority in your life. If you are one of the people in those two groups, the kingdom of heaven will always be a secondary or a third priority, and you will let the things of this world always come before it. Both perspectives are rooted in selfishness, putting higher value on comfort and safety in this world than you do the kingdom of heaven. Now, before you get too, that's right, that's who they are, that's right, before you get too judgmental, we have all struggled with these first two perspectives, haven't we? Every one of us, it's human nature. But the fact is, we are a church in battle. Ephesians 6.12, look what Paul says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Here's the third group of people that might ask the question, how long? Those who realize we are in a fight with evil until our Jesus returns. Look, we don't desire suffering. We're not gluttons. But we realize that suffering is a part of the reality of following Jesus in this world. Look, I'm not talking about a dead battery, a dropped call, a broken AC, although that might be close in Florida. I'm not talking about a fight with your spouse. I'm not talking about a mean atheist meme on Facebook that you're tagged in. I'm not even talking about the suffering that comes from having a dysfunctional family. Frankly, in America, and I'm not ripping on the American church, it's not our fault that we live in a prosperous nation. We have an inherent, actually, we and an American, Americans have an inherent disadvantage when it comes to keeping a proper perspective on suffering. Often, for Americans, I feel like the most smallest inconvenience or the lightest opposition is enough to cause us to neglect our kingdom responsibilities. Our earthly goals, work, culture, financial pressure, weather, <laughs> any number of things derail us from being a living sacrifice. Did you see those believers in Sarasota endure the tragedy of red tide? Wow, what faith, said no one ever. <laughs> the fact is most of us here in this room will likely never be martyrs for the gospel. Frankly, we give in to much less than the threat of death sometimes. But when evil does seem that it's winning, it can seem like God is slow to set things right. And we tend to think sometimes he needs our help. 
We want to fix it. Bring justice about ourselves. So we take out our frustration on culture or government or politicians or maybe other people. Maybe if we can just get enough Christians in charge of government, then we can stop evil. Listen, stop thinking there's a way to change the way evil works. It's not going to get better. Politics or laws won't change what evil is trying to do to the church. And stop being surprised when real kingdom work actually costs you something. Your Jesus said it would. It's not supposed to be free. It will never be easy. Because attacking the redeemed, frankly, it's the only option evil has left. Because the rest of the battle is over. This is the final death throes of evil. And the church is suffering in the battle against evil. It is part of the redemption process. It is, in fact, evil's last stand. I'm talking about real suffering like our precious first century brothers and sisters endured daily. And some of our brothers and sisters still endure today across the world. Because, you know, the question the martyrs ask, it may seem like it has a tone of betrayal, doesn't it? Why, God, where are you? What are you doing? But their question really isn't rooted in betrayal. Their question really is, and let me rephrase it for you, Jesus, how... We know how it ends, but how, how much longer do we have to wait for it? They know that Jesus plans on holding the forces of darkness accountable. Their day is coming. But it's in his timing and not ours. But one day, we will be a church in victory. You know, evil does hate the redeemed, but that hatred will not derail God's plan of redemption. He who has begun a good work in you would be faithful to complete it until the day of salvation. That's the promise that John is showing us in this passage. That once the full number of those God is going to call and has called to redemption is complete, and there is a number, I don't know what it is, but once that number is complete, Jesus is coming. He will set things right. At that moment, the redeemed will no longer be in a battle with evil. That's the sixth seal that we're going to be talking about next week when Jesus returns. I'm not saying he's returning next week. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making a prophecy here. I'm just talking, I'm preaching on it next week. I'm, Joe said he's coming next week. Get ready. Sell everything. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I mean, I hope, but... But the fact is, on that day, we'll no longer wrestle against the forces of darkness. We will take our part in the church of total victory. But until then, we as Christians are called to endure this battle as the kingdom of heaven grows up alongside of the weeds. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The idea of the power of his resurrection, well, duh, count me in on that, right? I'm all in for that. But what about the second part, the sharing in his sufferings? That's part of it too. 
The plan of redemption is far-reaching. The plan of redemption represented by these seven seals is long-lasting. It's part of a much larger war which began before we were ever born. And we are called, not just called, but we are also fully equipped to endure this final stage of that war. And why do we do it? For those who have yet to be redeemed. Just as those before us endured so that we could hear the gospel and be redeemed. You know, your story of salvation has blood on it. Thousands of years. If you're here today as a child of God, you have benefited from the past endurance of the faithful who kept the gospel alive, who kept the church thriving. They were, in fact, part of that church in battle that I was talking about earlier. Those who suffered for the sake of the gospel, who paid a great price, who sacrificed financially, sacrificed their time, sacrificed their energy. Why? For the advancement of the kingdom. And they've been doing it since the resurrection. And now, it's our privilege, it's our turn in this struggle with evil. So don't be surprised when it gets hard, and don't question God. Because the fact is, when you become an active part of this advancing kingdom, you should expect some pushback. If you're not getting pushback, you're probably not engaged enough. Look, the pushback may not be to the same degree as the martyrs under the altar in heaven or our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa and the Middle East, but the pushback will be there because the kingdom surely is advancing. Now, while it is advancing, don't, don't misunderstand. Evil is trying its best to keep up alongside of it. <laughs> but Jesus is coming. And evil will lose. And this idea of expecting suffering may seem counterintuitive, but this is the miracle of joy. And what is joy? Anybody remember the definition of joy? The supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. Man, I, I just got to tell you, like, as I'm preaching through it this week, there are moments when I'm writing this and I just, I start getting emotional, I start tearing, I just, I can't wait for that day. In fact, I got to tell you, the more I preach revelation, the less obsessed I become with this world. Everything becomes so much clearer. I'm not really worried about false hope in any politician or money or the repetitive nature of today's negative headlines. It's all becoming quite boring to me. Revelation has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Oh, an election? I'm waiting for Jesus. I mean, I find myself asking more and more, how long, Jesus? How much longer do we have to wait? Please come now. I don't want to pay the bills at the first of the month. I got to tell you, I'm weary from the battles waged with evil every day. I see evil waging battles in your lives, and I can see it happen. I see when some of you had started in the last few months to follow Jesus, all of a sudden, things start getting really complicated in your life. I know what's going on, and now you do too. Every day that we work to expand the kingdom and we ask the question, how long do I have to wait? 
And as Jesus said to the martyrs, just wait a little longer till the rest of your brothers and sisters have been redeemed. The fact is, it's a privilege to be a part of this church in battle. Awaiting our Jesus to complete his victorious, victorious plan of redemption. And one day, when Jesus opens that sixth seal that we'll talk about next week, again, not a prediction, <laughs> this final stage of this war will end in glorious, incredible fashion. But until then, we work, we worship, we pray, we sacrifice, and we persevere for the kingdom. You know why? Because as much as it wants to tell you it is, this world is not our home. Jesus, how long? <laughs> We're not asking because we feel betrayed. We're not asking because we doubt you. We're asking because we know you keep your promises and we just can't wait. But Lord, we know that you have given us the ability to endure and remain faithful in this final throes of the battle. We know that we are evil's last and final target. We know they are helpless against the four horsemen. We know they're helpless against you. We know they were helpless at the cross. But Lord, we also know that you dwell among us. You have given us, just like the martyrs under the altar, a white robe because of the work of Jesus. And because of that, we present our bodies to you a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God because it's the least we can do. So until that day, whether you call us home or you come back, give us the ability and the power and the motivation to work to worship, pray, and sacrifice, and persevere for your kingdom. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week for week seal number six.